Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, this is a fun episode. We have Senator Elizabeth Warren on the show today. You, you might have heard of her. She is a reasonably well-known politician in American politics. Uh, Senator Warren is the founder and also the innovator of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, something I, I mentioned first in her biography, because it is a frame for, for a lot of this discussion. She conceived of an agency, wrote it up in a journal called Democracy, and a couple of years later, it was an actual government government agency. There are very few policy entrepreneurs that successful in the last generation. And, and that experience, I think, is something that doesn't always get dug into, but is very important for understanding her, her politics. She's also the author of the new book, This Fight is Our Fight. I think the way to understand this book and Warren right now is there is an argument about what Democrats should be in the age of Donald Trump how they should respond both to him and to the sentiments in America that he has shown clearly exist. One of the the fascinating things in her book is where she outlines a debate she has with President Obama, where she talks about a speech he gave in the summer of 2016, where he said, look, big money is a problem in American politics, but the system is not as rigged as you think. That is Obama's hope. It is his optimism. It is his argument that people should be engaged because they are powerful. Warren takes the opposite tack. She says he's wrong. The system is more rigged than you think. It is more rigged than you even know. Uh, We talk a lot about the ways in which she thinks the system is rigged, which she really has thought about a lot, and and I don't think her view on this is simplistic or or easily dismissed. One of the, the things I think you'll hear in this discussion is Warren's view of where Democrats should be in this era is that they should look at what Trump has created as a faux populism and see it as a marker of the power of a a real populism, that they should be in reality what Donald Trump only claims to be. This is a a very powerful, and I think for many people, very appealing vision of how the Democrats should sound. It's not everybody's vision, obviously, but it, it, it goes deep, and I think she will be, along with maybe Bernie Sanders, the leading champion of it going forward. And that is gonna be, I think, a very, very important fault line in American politics. We talk a lot about that, about the way she thinks about complexity in politics and policy design and regulatory process and in agency design, creating space for the powerful to take things over. We talk about how liberals need to rebuild trust in government and how that can actually work. This is, I think, a, a useful interview for thinking about where she is and how she thinks about her politics, where the Democrats are and are likely to go, and where her politics is going to go. All that said, uh, here, without any further ado, is Senator Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. So I read the book. The book Good. is great. It's a lot of fun to read. Good. We were talking before we started that you get fan mail for old case law textbooks. <laughs> so it is nice to read read one um, written this well. Let me ask you about something that it comes sort of deep in the book that mm-hmm. felt to me like a, a useful window into it. You talk about a speech President Obama gave in the summer of 2016, where he said the system isn't as rigged as you think. And, and you write that, no, President Obama, the system is as rigged as we think. In fact, it's worse than most Americans realize. And, and somewhere else you say that the way it's rigged is not old school bribery with envelopes full of cash. It's a much smoother, slicker, and better dressed form of corruption. So I wanted to begin there. I think people do broadly believe the system is rigged, but I also think they think it's rigged in that blackmail, bribes, envelopes full of cash way. So talk to me about how it's rigged. What what do people miss about the rigging? So you know, because you've read the book, that there's actually a whole chapter on how basically billionaires and CEOs of giant corporations decided that they would simply exercise more influence in Washington. And what is their principal tool? Money. So how did they do that? Well, the obvious ways that we know about, 
uh, with campaign contributions and then hiring lobbyists. And I don't mean a handful of lobbyists. I mean armies and battalions and, you know, huge numbers of lobbyists. But that it's so much more. It's bought and paid for experts who not only show up and testify before Congress, but who are there to be quoted in the press. And it's think tanks that are funded by shadowy money and always have a particular point of view that just seems to help the rich and the powerful get richer and more powerful. It's even advertising. The whole notion that big corporations take out ads and by golly, the data show, this isn't my just sitting around thinking up conspiracy theories, the data show that they get better treatment then when, you know, push comes to shove on whatever's going on in the media. It's even the United States Supreme Court. So it's the, it's how money slithers through Washington like a snake. And it's quiet, but the influence is everywhere. I'm interested to explore a bit the piece of money here. The money is a big, big part of yeah. it. But I sometimes wonder how much you would get rid of if you did sort of basic good money in politics reform. So, so an example, uh, you write it for in the book about your opposition to Antonio Weiss during mm -hmm. the Obama era, who was a, a Treasury Secretary nominee who came from Lazard, an investment mm -hmm. bank. And I don't, th and that was a big fight between you and the mm -hmm. Obama administration. And I think that there was a real disagreement there on expertise, on, on what counted, and that it often seems to me the way things are captured is almost more subtle and insidious than money, that it's social circles people are in. It's what kinds of ideas are out there in textbooks, what kinds of ideas are out there in, in the intellectual debate, and that money is the ill everybody can agree on, so it gets a lot of the blame, and, and it is bad, and it is an ill. But I, I'm curious what you think about the pieces of this that are maybe not as much money, but are more subtle and are more about what kinds of arguments and how they're made that people find persuasive and what kinds of social circles people run in and who they meet when they go home and have a dinner party that weekend uh, at home. I think you're 100% right on this. And actually, I do try to talk about this in the book. The way I kind of frame it is money and power. And I talk about the revolving door and how it is that people work on Wall Street for 20 years and then take a spin through the revolving door and work in the Treasury Department or work in some other department for a few years and then spin right back to Wall Street. And that the point there is not that some business handed them sacks of cash, although do remember, these giant payouts that they give to people to go work in government are just stunning. I mean, millions of dollars, these big corporations say, if you go teach, we got nothing for you. You know, if you, if you, if you want to go build houses for Habitat for Humanity, you know, we'll give you a firm handshake. But if you'll go work in government, we'll write you this giant check to go do that. What is that except by way of saying, remember us, because you're going to be the one driving the bus. And when you're driving the bus, keep in mind all the things we care about. And then it is. It's the way it pervades. It's whose phone calls do you take. It's, it's who you see in the evenings. It's who are your old friends. It's every part of it. So that the rich and the powerful are incredibly well represented, not just at the 
top in the White House, but represented all the way through government in this town. So let me ask you about the other side of this. I think that one thing that can happen, particularly on the left, is that disagreement, real sort of opposition, can be dismissed as money, can be dismissed as a system being rigged. And and I think sometimes about a quote Bernie Sanders had, where he said that only 10 to 15 percent of the population would be Republican, if not for big money, sort of obfuscating everything and, and, and changing people's minds. Do you think there's validity to that? Do you think that it can become an easy out, that liberals who want to see something get done, uh, something that maybe is a very big change to society, it's easier to say that's not happening because the rich are stopping it, and that's not happening because Republicans really disagree, or because the public doesn't trust the government to take on that kind of a role, or because people just fear change. I see a lot attributed to money in politics, and some of which it seems to me is, but some of which it seems to me that's a an enemy everybody can agree on, and it sort of lifts the work of having to persuade people who really are disagree with you or don't trust you of your position. So look, I get the point. They're just things on which we disagree. I, I fundamentally get that. You notice Bernie's quote did not say nobody would be a Republican. Sure, of course not. He just says, look, a lot of the reason that Republicans are able to get out there and get votes is because the influence of money has changed the landscape, has tilted the playing field, has changed how people think about these issues and how people debate these issues. So I get your point. No one wants to short circuit the real debates. We need to have the real debates. We should have the real debates. But sometimes it feels really frustrating because you have them right now in Washington when you try to have them. It's against an onslaught that is so profoundly funded by money. I mean, what did you think when you saw billionaires, we think, I mean, it's also shadowy on the money, jump in a little over a year ago when Justice Scalia died and President Obama comes up with like the all-American consensus candidate. Merrick Garland, someone who had won praise from not just the left, but the right, that Orrin Hatch had talked about what a great guy he was, and that was just the kind of Supreme Court nominee we needed. So here's President Obama picking a guy in the middle, a guy who had a long track record of being a really solid jurist, and the hammer drops, bam. Mitch McConnell announces, we're not even going to meet with him. We're not going to have any hearings. And money starts rolling in. You know, if money hadn't rolled in to start running those ads against Merrick Garland, to threaten to run ads against Republicans who didn't fall into line, then my guess is a lot of folks across America, Democrats and Republicans, would have said, you know, he looks like a pretty good choice. He doesn't excite anybody on kind of either end of the spectrum. Sort of guy who ought to be able to get 60 votes. Let's give him a hearing. Let's see what he's like. And if that follows through, he would be sitting on the United States Supreme Court. But instead, money made itself felt in that process. And what we ended up with is a justice who, again, money was spent to advance Gorsuch. I, he wasn't running for office, right? And yet millions and millions of dollars were spent. 
to plump up Gorsuch's nomination and to get him through Congress. And what have we got now? We've got a guy who's got a track record that says, when it comes right down to it, in a debate between employees and corporations, he's picked corporations. Between women and corporations, he's picked corporations. Between consumers and corporations, he's picked corporations. In other words, a good bet that he helps tilt the United States Supreme Court even more pro-corporate. So I, I think this is a great example, and I think it'll be a good bridge to, to talking about how to unrig the system. Because let me paint the hypothetical here. Let's say we got incredibly powerful campaign finance and just money and politics reform through Congress. Let's say the only money that anybody could donate to any political activity whatsoever, whether you're running an ad through an independent uh, expenditure or you're donating to Elizabeth Warren or Mitch McConnell, is a $250 donation. Corporation can give $250. A person can give $250. That's it. Mm -hmm. No more money comes in. No more lobbyists. No more nothing. So now politics is running off of small donor donations. I think that Merrick Garland, as much as he himself was a very consensus centrist candidate, the ideological swing he would have brought to the court was tremendous. That's why he was so important, right? He would have taken a court that was 5-4 Republican to 5-4 Democratic uh, appointee. I'm going to stop you right there, though, Ezra, because I actually don't think that's right. I think what he would have done is I think he would have brought that court back to the middle. Merrick Garland was not a sharp left. Merrick Garland was not a guy who said, let me, you know, let me go after the corporations every chance I get. Merrick Garland was a little like Kennedy sometimes is, and that is kind of a guy in the middle, a guy who who calls it the way he sees it. That was his reputation. It, that's why it is that Orrin Hatch and others on the Republican side said, that's a good guy. That's the kind of guy who should be in the Supreme Court. They said that right up until he got nominated. I would say, so my read of this when, when I was uh, looking at this was that they felt that way, that he, that was true for a Democrat. And that I, I'm not in any way disagreeing with you on Garland. Everything you say about Garland is completely true. But the shift from having Scalia to Garland, just in terms of what the 5-4 voting coalition was on the court, for instance, Roe would be completely safe. Justice Kennedy could be replaced by a hard right Republican and Roe would be completely safe. There'd be a very different center of gravity, not an extreme center of gravity, but a different one. And I think that in that world, if you are a conservative, a religious conservative, say, and you're somebody who is sending in those $250 donations, you would have still seen that as, as a big problem. You still would have seen that as a very big difference in a direction you don't like. One of the the concerns here I have about politics going forward is the ideological stakes are now so high because the two sides disagree so much that that kind of all-out obstructionism, that kind of, you know, fight to the death, it's very rational. In some ways, what, what came before it is irrational. And, and to me, this is where we get to this question of how do you unrig the system? In some ways, I think both President Obama and President Trump ran for the office on a little bit of a similar argument, which is that I will come in and I will be above this. Obama, in a sort of idealistic way, Trump, because he's already so rich that he doesn't care what the special interests think. But both of them kind of came in, and and I think Obama might disagree with this a bit, but I think it's true, and said, I can pull the system out of this space. And I think that that wasn't true. And so how do you unrig it? Can a president unrig it? What is needed to make this something where it will not feel to people like their interests are no longer represented. So, look, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is there are a lot of places where it's broken. 
The good news is that means there are a lot of things you can fix, right? And that you can make some difference. Some differences at the margins, some differences that go right to the heart of it. But for me, the way I see this right now is the world shifted, not just when Donald Trump was elected, but when the Women's March happened the next day. And when millions of women and friends of women turned out and said, I'm going to make my voice heard in Washington. When millions of people across this country got connected, whether it was by email or by Twitter or by Facebook or however they did it, when they got connected and then when they started showing up during the healthcare debates, when they started going to town halls and when they started protesting and when they started marching and when they started showing up in airports, when the immigration ban was signed and these spontaneous demonstrations came came out just, just they were they were visceral they were grassroots they were part of how people felt about their government to me that's a moment american history changed no longer was it politics is every 4 years for most americans and then a few people stay involved on one issue that they're very engaged on and or two issues or three issues and sometimes weigh in on it no it was a moment when people said, I'm going to use everything I've got to make sure that this government reflects my values. And I think that that's the moment it shifted. So, so one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I've been talking about every time I get out now, is how people can get engaged. Because the question I hear you asking is, what were the tools available? What were the tools available to Barack Obama? What were the tools available to Donald Trump? Part of it is to say, don't do the bad things, right? To Donald Trump, I would say, hey, look, don't appoint a bunch of billionaires and bankers and put them in charge of our economy. Don't sign off on a bunch of laws that are just great for corporations, but punching working families right in the gut. But the other part is to say, how do we make our voices heard? And here's the part right now that I think I think is so exciting, Ezra, and why I'm, I'm actually very optimistic at this moment, is that that health reform debate, that, that fighting back the assault on health care that the Republicans launched through Trump care, when we beat that back, we proved that just showing up, just getting in the fight, just being willing to talk about it, could change an outcome. I mean, here's how I think of that story. 60-plus times, House Republicans had voted to repeal Obamacare, right? Senate Republicans, ready to go. Donald Trump had said at least a bazillion times out on the campaign trail, on day one, we will repeal Obamacare. So he gets elected, and a lot of people say, wait a minute, they're coming after health care. So we started having rallies, and we started focusing in on one idea, and that is you cannot repeal and run. Instead, you've got to repeal and replace. If they'd done repeal and run, then, man, we'd be standing there with our begging bowls hoping for anything in terms of some help on health care. But once they had to repeal and replace, even President Trump picked up said, yes, repeal and replace, they had to show just what ugly ugly plans they had in mind. And when they went to the American people with, here, 
let's rip healthcare coverage away from 24 million Americans. Let's increase the cost of insurance for a whole bunch of middle-class families. And let's do that in order to produce a tax break for a handful of millionaires and billionaires. And people across this country said, no, no, no. And here's the deal. I get it that the reason officially that the bill didn't go through was because for a handful of Republicans, it was not brutal enough. You know, it hadn't hurt people enough or produced a big enough tax cut. But here's what's interesting. The rest of those Republicans, they didn't follow them over that cliff. And why not? Because of all the people who had shown up, who had made phone calls, who had sent emails, who had done Facebook posts, that's democracy. So let me push you on this a bit because I think it's I think this is one of the great questions of politics. This feels to me very much like the Obama argument. Obama had created this campaign in 2008 that was unprecedented in its mobilization and its activation. And people can argue about how he organized that afterwards. But something they found and they felt was that risk aversion, loss aversion, which you saw at the end of Bush, right? Liberals were exhausted, infuriated. They needed something different after George W. Bush. And they were willing to fight for that. Well, that was not as true for, for conservatives. The negative seems to many, to me, to be more powerful in turning people out than the positive. Obamacare is such a good example because when it was passing and then after it passed, it powered the Tea Party movement. Barack Obama was never able to get the kinds of crowds out for Obamacare that he could get out for himself during the campaign. And then when Obama was about to get taken away, then loss aversion kicked in again on the liberal side. All of a sudden, the repealers could not get anybody out anywhere, but liberals were able to get big crowds out to town halls all over the country and back people up. And so I wonder about the question of positively unrigging a system. This feels to me like people put a lot of their energy into the person. Then the person is in there and they say, you should be able to do this now. We got you elected. And the other side who feels powerless says, we're going to come in to the streets and stop it. How do you merge the getting somebody elected with staying in the streets? So it's a it's a great question, but I, I'll read this time period slightly yeah. differently. And that is, I think that once he got elected, President Obama thought, the the goodness of the thing he was passing spoke for itself. And I don't think he really was out there, you know, beating the bushes, trying to get the crowds, trying to get people to help him push this thing forward. So I, I'm going to start by saying, I don't think we've tested yet the can you use the, the energy of democracy for an affirmative to get something passed. But I want to give you something else. And that is the example of when we did exactly that, and it happens almost simultaneously. Remember, the crash happens in 2008, um, and we know we're going to do financial reforms. Uh, the original focus was on Wall Street. What have we got to do for Wall Street? And I had this idea for this consumer agency, right? And the basic idea behind it was to say, we've got to take all these various consumer laws, put them with one agency, and hold that agency responsible for enforcing them. The problem was we had plenty of laws, but they're all scattered at the Fed and the OCC and all kinds of different places, and they just weren't a first priority for anybody. So the, it's a structural change, a new agency in a world where the word government agency is like, you know, coughing up a hairball to a lot of people. So how do you get an agency through like that? 
an agency, now let's do part two, that basically takes aim at the profit centers of some of the largest financial institutions in this country. It says you can't do what you're doing on credit cards, on mortgages, on financing the payday lenders, on every part of this. So you take on some of the most powerful entities in this country, and you hit them right where it hurts the hardest. That's on profits, and that's on the consumer agency. So what happened? We put the proposal out there. The big banks say, no, never, will not happen. Hire all the lobbyists in the world. Okay, I'm exaggerating slightly. Just 92% of That's it. right. That's right. Uh, and, they, um, and they spend more than a million dollars a day. That's every day, including Saturdays and Sundays, to lobby against the financial reforms generally. But let's face it, the center of the bullseye on what they were lobbying against was that consumer agency. And they were so damn confident that they were going to win that they were announcing in the paper, on the front page, their lobbyists, that consumer agency will never become law. How we turn it into law? We turned it into law through democracy. We got enough people around this country engaged, writing letters, making phone calls, doing Facebook posts, that when Congress was thinking about the Senate going forward with a reform bill that did not have the consumer agency in it, there was enough pushback that they didn't do that. They included the consumer agency, and we got a good, strong agency passed into law. And here's the best part. It's the good, strong agency. It's been out there, what, about five years now? It has already forced the biggest financial institutions in this country to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. It has already handled more than a million complaints for people. I'll say to everybody on the podcast, go to cfpb.gov if you've been cheated out of $15 or $15,000. They may be able to help you on this. It's the people's agency. It works. And banks have been after it and after it and after it. But by golly, it's got enough widespread support, democratic support, that so far at least, they haven't been able to take the legs out from underneath it. You have a very interesting couple of chapters in the book. Oh, uh, I like hearing that. I know, right? <laughs> um, about the stance you took in opposition to Trump and the way you approached it. And, and it was fascinating to me because you talk about the tweets you sent and the way you attacked him. And you sort of say, look, like I had to go hard against Trump and I didn't like it. And I know it makes people uncomfortable, but it's how you get people to pay attention. And, and it speaks to something I've been struggling with a lot, which is, is the only way to fight the angry form of faux populism Trump represents with an also angry form of populism? Does it have to be, the, the book is structured around the, the metaphor of a fight. And is Trump, will he drag the system down into that kind of war? Should it be? Is that just the natural form of politics? Or are there other meters within it? How does everything not become Trumpified in the age of Trump? How is there space for a politics that is not the one he has set up? So I think that's a that's a really terrific question. Thank I'll, you. You know, I thought of it myself. That's great. I'm so <laughs> glad. Let, let, me, let me tell you how I think about it right now. I think the most important thing we can do is be in the fight. I actually do think the fight metaphor is right, that this is how democracy works now and that everything we hold dear 
is truly under assault. So being in the fight is critically important, whether you're fighting well, whether you're fighting mediocre or whatever it is. I, I, I start with the importance of getting in the fight and being committed to the fight. But the second part, we can't shoot at everything that moves. And I, what I hear your question to be is, so how do you think about the effective ways to fight back? And now we're in a different place. Trump is about to end his first 100 days. Ugh. And we're in this place of saying, you know, name-calling is not what this is going to be about. That's happened. Either it worked or it didn't work. People have been persuaded or they haven't been persuaded. What matters is we got to be focused on what Donald Trump does, what he's actually doing. One of the things when I'm out and around talking to folks, I talk about the fact that in the short period of time, he's already signed off on laws that would permit federal contractors uh, just to make it easier to cheat their workers out of their wages, make it easier for companies that kill or maim their employees to hide that, make it easier for investment advisors to cheat retirees. Ultimately, Donald Trump will be held accountable for what he does. Can I ask you something on that? I was thinking about this. You do a great job in the book of talking about the ways in which Donald Trump's populism has proven a con. This guy runs for office, says he's going to take back the government from Goldman Sachs, cleans out Goldman Sachs to staff his government. He runs for office saying he'll give, he's going to raise taxes on the rich, give everybody health care, does, you know, at least proposes in every single case the opposite. And yet there was a, a Washington Post poll this weekend that showed, while people are not happy with Donald Trump, nobody who voted for him, or basically nobody who voted for him regrets that vote. Why do you think Trump's now unmistakable divergence from populism, from economic populism, has not hurt him with the voters, at least who we think came to him, because they were excited about the idea that they believed he would stand up for them against big interests, because they believed that he was something different? So not everybody reads quite as closely every single day what's going on in Washington as you do, Ezra. Uh, you're doing a great job out there. But but I think part of this is we're still in the first hundred days. We're not, we're not at the fourth year, the beginning of the fourth year, where people have kind of seen this play out over time. And that's why I say it's going to take discipline, and it's going to take talking about what he does. And, and I want to be honest here an honest broker about what he does. If he does good things, then okay. He gets to chalk those up. If he does things that really help American families, then he gets to chalk those up. But every time he punches working families, then it's got to be added to the list. And at the end of the day, this has got to be, I'm going to now talk about turning the temperature down on the noise around it, but turning the temperature up on the reality. You know, you haven't mentioned, a part of this book is about the people I talked with as I was writing it. I think about them. When we talk about what's happening to America's working families, America's, America's families who are just under such pressure right now, they want to see change. They want to see things that help make the world work just a little better for them. And I think that that's going to be the question. Donald Trump made one set of promises. In the first hundred days, he's clearly gone in the opposite direction. 
Let's see what he does in the next 100 days. And the other half of that, let's offer some alternatives about what we would do on the other side. Let's let's talk about our affirmative vision. Something I've always been interested in, in your vision, and, and it's part of what I think is a fascinating piece of the unrigging the system, is you've always been focused, I think, somewhat uniquely among, among politicians and the way complexity creates space for power to, to overtake things. We've been talking about a lot of headline issues, a big healthcare bill, um, a, a big financial regulation bill. But you've, I think, been very unusual in trying to draw attention to something happening in the regulatory process here or deep inside a trade bill there. And I'm curious about how you think of that on a systemic level. How do you take the parts of government that are outside of the public eye, because the public cannot be focused on every single hearing, on every single regulation coming through the pike, and fortress them a little bit against that kind of takeover by the moneyed interest who do have the power and the interest and the incentive and the cash to spend time on it and to send really well-prepared lobbyists to it. How do you make your concern with complexity into a vision for how to run government? This was a huge issue for me when I was thinking about setting up the consumer agency. Uh, You know, I had a year, basically, to come in and and try to put it together. And what I kept thinking about is how the more complex our rules are, the more opportunities there will be for, over time, different actors, the most powerful actors, the biggest banks, the biggest debt collectors, to come in and get just a little shading for them, just a tiny little opening here, just a little more negotiation for the part that helps them. And over time, I'm actually going to lay these in because I think they, they match, how an agency will hear only from them. They will hear only from the rich. They will hear only from the giant corporations whose ox is being gored here. They won't hear from the people that every single day are ultimately affected by the decisions they make. So you are right when you say the problem is not bad faith of regulators. It's the structural problem that complexity requires real resources to navigate. And that's why it is that it favors the richest and most powerful. For me, What that meant, for example, over at the consumer agency was two parts that I can tell you about right from the beginning. One was how to get the consumer's voice back into the process, not just once, not just you came to it as a regulator with a good heart because you'd worked somewhere else where you'd had a chance to see it. It was how you got it in every day. And that's where I think that the complaint line is actually one of the most amazing things about the consumer agency. So I will say it's the most amazing. I know people worked on that line, yeah. not, not through, not at the top, but at the bottom. Uh-huh. And one thing that's fascinating to me is a culture there took that line so seriously. Yes. yes. That's what didn't, that's what doesn't happen yes. in other agencies. That's right. In fact- You can have a complaint line. It only matters if people care. In fact, that was the thing. When I was setting up the complaint line, I looked around at the other agencies because in fact, there are a bunch of complaint lines in the, of some form or another where you can send complaints into the federal government. And I was just appalled. I mean, they were just thrown into cardboard boxes. You know, they were just put away. They were given to the, you know, the employee who does the least and, you know, is in the furthest corner in the dingiest office, which is kind of a signal in itself. 
I did everything I could when I was setting up that agency to make that complaint hotline where they were going to bring in the information from on the ground, from real people, to have good space, to have really smart, terrific people running it, and then to integrate it through the agency. So they started making heat maps out of it. So you can actually run the data and say, wow, we're starting to get a lot of complaints on student loans. Student loans, huh? How? Wait. Now, let's analyze that again. It's, oh, they're all coming about one particular lender. And you tell the enforcement division about this. You tell the outreach division. How about telling the student loan division about what's happening here? So people are integrated and want this information throughout the agency, and it keeps the focus on the people the agency is supposed to serve. That was That's the key. I'll also say on the other part, because it's a huge issue, what kind of rules do you write? Do you write rules that go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Or do you try to write rules that, yeah, they don't cover every contingency, but they're fairly clear, they're fairly bright line. Most ordinary English speakers could read them and understand them. And then, yeah, the details will have to be worked out over time. Sometimes the details will be litigated in court. But you start with a set of basic principles. I confess here, with a background in contract law and in teaching the Uniform Commercial Code, now don't go to sleep on me here, uh, but... I, I like talking uh, about contract oh, law. Good, good. <laughs> but part of this is you look at things like Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code or Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code. They lay it out in pretty clear terms. Here are the expectations on the buyer. Here are the expectations for the seller. Uh, here are the expectations for the lender. Here are the expectations for the borrower. And those are the basic principles. And yeah, there's some litigation around it, but that's the basic deal. And anybody, not somebody who has to hire a team of lawyers, anybody could read that and say, okay, I kind of get what's going on here. And I get what it is I'm, you know, where the line is and how far I can walk over here before I'm doing something that's no longer going to be supported by the law. For liberal populists who want this kind of action to go forward, who care about things like Medicare for all, the that suite of policies. What is the program for raising the public's trust in government? Because it, it does seem to me that the precondition for much of this is for people to see the government as possibly on their side. And what Trump, I think, understood is that the public sees both corporations and the government as on the other side in some ways in the same ways and in some ways merged, right? It's a class of the powerful that is not cut. How do you begin to break that down? How do you how do you unwind that? Well, the first part is you actually got to get out there and fight on the people's side. I mean, this is not a world where you just get to say, hey, we love you. Uh, uh, we're here from the government. You actually got to deliver. And the second part is when you do deliver, you actually need to talk about it and listen to feedback. If it's not working for the people it was supposed to be working for, then change it. Give someone the authority to change it. You know, I have three brothers who are veterans, all three of them. And my brothers have given me an earful about the Veterans Administration. I know the scandal's the big part and so on. But the way I look at this is the guy at the top, I have no doubt, 
really wants to try to deliver for veterans. But could you get out there and listen to some veterans and what it feels like to them on the ground when nobody's paying attention to their issues, when they describe how impossible it is to get from point A to point B to point C, and yet the rules of the Veterans Administration are that you got to go to A and then you got to go to B and then you got to go to C. So for me, I think a big part of this is we got to engage people more with their government. We got to we got to be willing to listen and we've got to be willing to make change and you know what that means? You've also got to be willing to take some chances, to try some things that haven't been tried before, to goose it around and to try to move it and to try to make it work better. Look, healthcare, let's face it. The government is now in the middle of making sure that more and more Americans get healthcare coverage. The problem is cost is just flying out of control, and that's not working for middle-class families. So what we got to do is we got to be willing to get out there and try not one way, not just three ways, but 10 different ways to drive down those costs. Some of it will be about going after the drug companies and where they're spending money. But some will be about going after how we do billing practices with hospitals, but always, always, always with a goal in mind, and that is drive down costs for consumers, better care, higher costs. So I know you've got to get to your next appointment. So here's a question we, we use to end the podcast. What are three books you've read that that you care about, that have influenced you, that you'd recommend to the audience? Oh, wow. I always am terrible at these because I you know what's going to happen. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to say, dang, I should have told him X, right? You can always email me more. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Evicted. Have you read it? By Matthew Desmond. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. God, it is, it, it is a book that tells you about housing, right? And why housing is one way to understand how the world works. Uh, $2 a day. Um, By Catherine Eden. Catherine, that's right. That gives another vision of how hard you have to work just to be poor. I mean, when you're trying to make it from day to day to day when you're poor. Um, And my third, how about the little engine that could? (laughs) Those are great. Always read it. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you to Senator Elizabeth Warren for being here. I thought that was a, a really interesting interview. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you to my producers, as always, Brooke Pinkerton and Peter Leonard couple quick requests for you this week. Uh, you should be checking out I Think You're Interesting, the podcast from Todd Vanderwerf, our critic at large. He's got a great, great, great episode with Richard Kelly, who was the director of Donnie Darko. Um, for those of us who love Donnie Darko, it is a total, total delight. should also, if you're a fan of The Weeds, uh, and just if you're a fan of this show, check out The Weeds Facebook page, which has become a lot of fun. Uh, I'm part of it, and I participate in it, and it has had some great, really wonky discussions about politics and policy, particularly. If you enjoyed this conversation with Senator Warren, I think you will enjoy that. And finally, please keep sending in your questions to EzraKleinShowBox.com for our upcoming AMA episode. We'd love to hear what you want me to answer. All right. Thank you very much.